Hello and thank you so much for joining me. This is Madam Butterfly and I am back again. Um, so I attempted to record yesterday um, this uh, today's episode, um, which was meant for yesterday, which was supposed to be released yesterday. Um, I was having some slight technical issues, so for that reason, um, I'm going to have to start over. So, um, yeah, I'll probably be pushing everything back about a day or so. Um, so I apologize for that. But you are currently tuned in to uh, Miss Madam Butterfly. <laughs> Not Madam Butterfly. Let me get this intro right. How about that? <laughs> Hello, my name is Madam Butterfly, and you are tuned into Frequency Bay. Um, so I'm going to be getting to the big six. Um, and we're going to be talking about neurotransmitters today. Uh, primarily the brain is today's topic. And we will be going over and or listening into a presentation given by um, a woman by the name of Dr. Snips or Dr. Snaps. Somewhere in there, I'm probably getting her name for that. I, I apologize, but I'm going to go ahead and get on into it and not waste much time. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on neurobiology, dopamine, GABA, serotonin, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and glutamate. So we're really going to be hitting the big six today. Um, the PowerPoint is a little bit longer than it usually is in terms of the number of slides, but there are a lot of things that I'm going to go through quickly because you'll be able to go back and reference them and they don't need a whole lot of explanation. Um, as always, if you have something to add, if you have a comment, question, please feel free to type that in the chat window and I will answer it or segue it in as soon as I can. So we're going to define neurobiology and for the following neurotransmitters, you know, the big six, we're going to look at their mechanism of action. What, why are they there? Where are they found? And I know, yeah, the brain. But where else are they found? Symptoms of excess and insufficiency. Because when we're looking at anxiety, when we're looking at fatigue, when we're looking at difficulty concentrating, there are a lot of symptoms that are transdiagnostic. They're present in multiple diagnoses. And you know they can be caused by different things. We'll look at nutritional building blocks for each neurotransmitter because I always harp on having reasonable nutrition. And reasonable, as you'll see as we go through, really shouldn't be that hard. And then we'll look at some medications that are used to increase and decrease or medications that may inadvertently increase and decrease the neurotransmitters in the brain. So neurobiology is the study of the brain and the nervous system which generates sensation, perception, movement, learning, emotion, and many of the functions that just make us human. When we have an emotion, where does that come from? Well, it's a chemical reaction that whatever happens um, kicks off a chemical reaction. And if we're getting upset or getting stressed or getting excited, then we're going to have 
glutamate and norepinephrine and dopamine probably going out if we're excited, for example. Um, so we want to pay attention to that. If we're calming down, then we're going to have GABA serotonin kind of coming in and saying, all right, now's the time to rest and relax. So our emotions or what we label as emotions are triggered by neurochemicals. And why is that important? Well, because if somebody comes in and they're trying to address their depression, you know, whatever that looks like for them, well, that's great. But they need to understand where that's coming from. There are some cognitive things that can trigger that their brain to think that there's a threat, which sets off the stress response. And But they need to understand that there is a neurochemical, a biological component to it. So it's not just about changing their thinking. They also need to be making sure that they're body machine is in top working order. So think about it. As we go through this presentation, you have a client who presents with apathy, loss of pleasure, sleep disturbances, fatigue, and difficulty concentrating. Yeah, my, my first thought is major depressive disorder or persistent depressive disorder. Um, what would your diagnosis be? And you may say, too little information yet. That would be a great answer too. If somebody presented to their physician with these symptoms, what medication would you expect the doctor to put him or her on? My experience has been with most physicians, the first thing they do, SSRIs, let's increase serotonin. And as you'll learn, as we go through this, these symptoms are transdiagnostic and they can be caused by either too much or too little of most of the big six. So we don't necessarily know whether the person has too little serotonin. So if we start increasing it, and that's not their problem, then we're going to have symptoms of too much serotonin, which can be really unpleasant. Um, and it's also whatever else was lacking down here. More serotonin means that's even more lacking, so to speak, because everything needs to be in a balance. Like I always make the analogy of a good marinara sauce. You know, if you taste it, and there's not enough oregano, um, you know, or it's just not right, and you start dumping oregano in, then maybe it was garlic and, and not oregano. So now the oregano is even stronger, and the garlic taste comparatively is even weaker. Um, so we want to pay attention to what's going on. And obviously, we're not making diagnoses, and none of this presentation is meant to um, tell patients to change their medical medication regime or start eating a certain way or take any supplements, all of that should be covered through their primary care physician. But it's important for us to be aware. So if clients are struggling, because we know that antidepressants only work for 30 to 40% of the people who take them, we want to look at why is that? Well, maybe it isn't serotonin that's out of whack for this person. Maybe there's an underlying biochemical cause. Maybe it's a different neurotransmitter. So we can help people sort of advocate for themselves. Um, you know, maybe they need a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor so they can talk with their doctor about what the options are. We can help them educate themselves. They need to do the advocacy and work with their physician. So dopamine, we're going to start out with the pleasure chemical because, well, it's first in the alpha. No, it's not first. Anyway, it's the first one that comes to mind for most people. Mechanism of action. It is involved in movement, memory, pleasurable reward, behavior and cognition, attention, 
inhibition of prolactin production, sleep, mood, and learning. So it's involved in everything. So if your dopamine levels are out of whack, you're probably going to experience some difficulty in one or more of these areas. Um, now, obviously, if you're having difficulty focusing attention, your memory is probably going to falter as well, as well as your cognition. You know, you're not going to be thinking as well if your mind's racing, if you're having racing thoughts. So all of these can come together. If you're not getting a good sleep, you may start feeling sort of depressed and blue and not be motivated to focus and learn. So we want to pay attention to dopamine's impact in the person and look at our clients who are experiencing some of these symptoms that seem depressive in nature and, and take a look at, especially if they start on an SSRI um, or they've been on them before and it hasn't worked, you know, we may want to look at, is there something else causing it? Altered dopamine neurotransmission. So if you're not getting enough or you're getting too much, Cognitive control, people will have racing thoughts. Attentional control, can't focus. Impulse control, self-explanatory. Working memory is going to kind of go, which you would expect with the problems with attentional control and, and racing thoughts. Mood, motivation, and sleep are all going to be impacted. So where is dopamine found? You know, okay, we realize that there may be a problem with it. Where do we find it? Well, it's in the brain and the kidneys. Kidneys. So if you have a client who has kidney disease or has, is taking any kind of medication that alters kidney functioning um, or and or um, maybe engaging in high-intensity activities that are causing fluctuations in hydration, it can alter, to a certain extent, dopamine levels. Definitely can alter medication levels. Dopamine functions in several parts of the peripheral nervous system. In blood vessels, it inhibits norepinephrine, which is our motivation and focus chemical and an excitatory chemical. And it acts as a vasodilator, so it helps us relax. So if you have a client who's kind of stressed, high-strung, dopamine may be part of it. In the kidneys, it increases sodium and urine excretion, so it keeps the kidneys functioning well. If you don't have the right sodium balance, you can have something called rhabdomyolysis, which can be really bad. Um, and we want to, so we want to make sure that clients are going to the bathroom enough. Um, in the pancreas, it reduces insulin production. If we're working with a client who is diabetic, paying attention to their moods, their sugar levels, and, you know, all of that may be important. And if they're having difficulty stabilizing their sugar levels, looking maybe at dopamine. In the digestive system, it reduces gastrointestinal motility and protects the intestinal mucosa. So it slows things down. In the, in the immune system, it reduces lymphocyte activity. So why do we care? We're mental health. Because um, it can be impl implicated in autoimmune diseases. And I've linked to several articles through here that have indicated that if dopamine is increased, they found an increase, or is, is decreased, I'm sorry, um, they found an increase in lymphocyte activity. So people who have autoimmune diseases may not have enough dopamine. So if dopamine's increased, then that lymphocyte activity, that overactive immune system, is blunted sometimes. Symptoms of excess. And when we think about dopamine, one of the first things we often think about is schizophrenia. 
not necessarily the only thing. And we don't know that dopamine problems actually cause schizophrenia because when we address schizophrenia with dopamine um, antagonists or dopamine, dopamine agonists, depending on whether you're looking at positive or negative symptoms, it only partially addresses the problems that people are having. And then the side effects are horrid. Um, there are other medications, and I'm getting ahead of myself, that also produce psychotic-like features. So we're not for sure whether dopamine is it. We think dopamine's involved, but there are probably other neurochemicals that are also involved in the development of schizophrenia. So too much dopamine, unnecessary movements, repetitive tics, psychosis, hypersexuality, nausea. Um, this can also kind of overlap a little bit with hypomania um, or mania. If you've got somebody who is really, you know, physiologically agitated and they may, with mania, they're going to have some psychotic features. There's hypersexuality is common. So these are all common in um when there is, is too much dopamine. Most antipsychotic drugs are dopamine antagonists. So they're going to make these things go away. They're gonna slow the person down, get rid of the psychosis, reduce the sexuality, reduce the nausea, um, in order to bring it back in line with what the person wants as a quality of life. Dopamine antagonist drugs are also some of the most effective anti-nausea agents. If you have somebody who's going and going out and on a boat on a cruise and they're going to um, they're afraid they're going to be seasick and they start taking anti-nausea agents. Um, women who are pregnant sometimes take anti-nausea agents if they have really bad morning sickness. Um, so there are a lot of times where you may see this use. When my son was um, got out of the NICU, he had gastric re uh, esophageal reflux disease and they prescribed him Reglan, which... I didn't realize at the time um, how powerful of a drug that was, but it increased gastric emptying, so it, the food got out of his stomach faster so it didn't repeat on him. If somebody doesn't have enough dopamine, they may have blunting of affect and apathy, loss of motivation, increased pain, symptoms of Parkinson's disease or restless leg syndrome, um, Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because dopamine helps us focus. Neurological symptoms that increase in frequency with age, such as decreased arm swing and increased rigidity. And changes in dopamine levels may also cause age-related changes in cognitive flexibility. So it's, um, dopamine goes down, we lose some cognitive flexibility. But thinking again, if we have a client who um, has normal dopamine levels and they start taking a powerful anti-nausea agent for some reason and they start feeling sort of depressive symptoms or restless legs or ADHD type things, we want to try to connect the dots as a side effect of that, potentially a side effect of that anti-nausea agent that they may need to talk over with their doctor if they didn't have the symptoms until they started taking the medication and then all of a sudden they're having them. Other symptoms of insufficient dopamine, lack of motivation, fatigue, apathy, uh, procrastination, low libido, sleep problems, mood swings, hopelessness, memory loss, and difficulty concentrating. I think I covered those on the other slides leading up to this. But a lot of this looks like, on a, on a quick glance, 
looks like depression, which again, a lot of times doctors are going to go straight for a, serot a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, so that, that might not be the best thing for that person. Nutritional building blocks. Eating a diet high in magnesium and tyrosine. Um, magnesium is obviously a vitamin, uh, actually mineral. Um, and tyrosine is an amino acid. If you eat a good quality diet that has decent quality proteins, you're going to get the tyrosine. Um, but it ensures you've got the basic building blocks needed for dopamine production. Chicken, almonds, apples, avocados, bananas, chocolate. I like chocolate. And, you know, you can get the chocolate powder, the Hershey's cocoa dark chocolate powder. Um, and it has like, I think it's 10 calories per tablespoon. So it's not the same as eating a chocolate bar. So if people are trying to increase their chocolate consumption, uh, that's one way to do it where they're not getting all those saturated fats and everything. Green leafy vegetables, green tea, lima beans, oatmeal, sesame and pumpkin seeds, turmeric, which is a spice. You're not going to eat enough turmeric to really increase your dopamine levels unless you're really experimenting with your cooking. Watermelon and wheat germ. So most people can find two or three things on this list that they're willing to eat. And, you know, that's all we're talking about. We're not, we're not talking about anything huge in terms of altering their diet. Again, they need to talk it over with their nutritionist. If they're on any sort of medications, especially MAOIs um, or typical antipsychotics, it's going to be even more important that they talk with their nutritionist or physician because there's a lot of dietary restrictions with those. Medications. Dopamine in the blood is not able to cross the blood-brain barrier to reach the brain. So people can't just take a supplement of dopamine and go, okay, cool, I'm good. Uh, so they need to have provide their body the building blocks so their brain can make the dopamine. The most common dopamine agonists, so this is what increases dopamine um, and is going to get rid of negative symptoms, which are your apathy, your depressive type symptoms, you're not wanting to speak, your catatonia, restless legs, Parkinson's, um, Mirapex and Requip are the name brands of two of the more common uh, medications that are prescribed. Levodopa, Carbidopa, um, and there's, that's the generic, um, is converted to dopamine in the brain. So that's another drug that they often prescribe. But a side one to consider, and a lot of our clients are on Buspirum. So a side one to consider and just to learn a little bit about is Buspirum because it does increase um, freely available dopamine in the brain. In the brain. Um, so that might be one. It's not nearly as powerful as the other two, but it might be one that our clients look towards. If you're not familiar with Buspirone, it's not a benzodiazepine or, or a barbiturate, but it has a lot of anti-anxiety type properties. It's one that takes time to get into the system, like an antidepressant. takes two to four weeks to build up in the system, um, but it's non-addictive in the same way, you know, it's it not addictive like Xanax or Valium or any of those are. So it is one option, especially for clients who have co-occurring issues uh, that they can consider for anxiety if some of the other things make them too tired, like um, some of the antidepressants that are also used for anxiety at high levels. And um, uh, what's the other one I was thinking of? Seroquel, 
that's another one I've seen prescribed for anxiety. Uh, so, so these are options for them. Most common dopamine antagonists. These are the ones that get rid of the positive symptoms, such as the hypersexuality and nausea and, and things like that. Risperdone, Haldol, and Zyprexa. They will also get rid of the hallucinations, the delusions, things that you don't want to be there that are there. Um, Reglan is the one I told you about. The um, metoclopramide is an anti-nausea medication. It also helps speed up gastric emptying. So some of your clients, especially your elderly clients who are, or people who have gastric esophageal re reflux disease, GERD, um, may be on this. So being aware that this, uh, this medication will blunt and slow people down a little bit. So if they're starting to feel depressed, um, take a look at side effects of medications. Supplements, which can increase dopamine. L-theanine is another amino acid that's found in green tea. So if people are just drinking green tea, they're not going to get enough L-theanine to you know, cause any problems or negative interactions with their medication. But you can get it as a supplement. So if clients are talking about taking this as a supplement, especially if they're taking other uh, psychotropic meds, they need to let their doctor know. Rhodeo rhodiola rosea, or golden root, also increases dopamine uh, by enhancing the stability of it and supporting its reuptake which has been shown to produce decreases in depression, anxiety, and fatigue, and an increased ability to handle stress. So it's an herb that's used a lot in Eastern medicine in order to provide anti-anxiety, antidepressant type effects. Blood levels of antipsychotic medications and lithium are especially sensitive to hydration levels. So if your client is taking any of those, it's important that they are aware of uh, aware of this fact that they don't get too dehydrated but they also don't get too hydrated um, neuro, uh, neuromalignant syndrome is caused by a sudden marked reduction in dopamine activity either from withdrawal of dopaminergic agents or from blockade of dopamine receptors symptoms include high fever confusion rigid muscles variable blood pressure sweating and fast heart rate now this is also very similar to the symptoms that you're going to see when we talk about serotonin syndrome. So it's important to pay attention when these symptoms are there because it's life-threatening. Um, complications can include rhabdomyolysis, the kidney problems, high blood potassium, kidney failure, or seizures. Um, so we want to be aware of what's going on with our clients. Uh, we want to talk with them about any symptoms that they're having. This can be caused, you know, by any sort of sudden reduction, and it doesn't have to be just from um, a reduction in, in a dopamine-type medication. They've shown it with some other um, medications as well. Dopamine levels decline by around 10% per decade from early adulthood and have been associated with declines in cognitive and motor performance. Dopamine levels are also impacted by the availability of estrogen. So here's another age-related change. If you're working with a woman who is older, a woman who is uh, experiencing premenstrual dysphoric disorder, a woman who is recently postpartum, it's important to look and realize that hormone levels are fluctuating widely, which also means dopamine levels are going to fluctuate widely. Um, as far as Wellbutrin as an agonist, 
I'm not aware. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, norepinephrine. This is my favorite um, neurochemical, if you will. It's your fight or flight excitatory neurotransmitter. It's implicated in motivation and focus. So norepinephrine goes out, you get that kind of laser focus. When people don't have enough norepinephrine, um, then it causes problems with arousal and, and a lot of other things. When faced with severe stress, the stress response system activates raising norepinephrine as well as other stress hormones, which increases arousal, um, increases insomnia. You know, you don't want to be sleeping if you're under threat. It increases anxiety, irritability, emotional instability. And if it goes on for too long, it can also increase depression. So cortisol, if you remember from, from other lectures, cortisol causes the body to say, you know, we're going to reduce estrogen right now because we don't have a need for procreation. There's a threat out here, which tells you from the last slide that dopamine levels are going to go down too. Ooh, okay. So, but we also know that serotonin availability is affected by estrogen levels. So serotonin is a calming chemical and helps with mood. So dopamine and serotonin go down when estrogen goes down. Norepinephrine goes up, which increases heart rate and respiration and focus and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, we also know that a lack of um, serotonin or less serotonin is going to be implicated in, in sleep problems. So, so I'll probably go another, about another 10 minutes here and uh, wrap it up and work on... Um, Work on part two um, a little bit later today or tomorrow morning. We'll see what happens. So definitely stay tuned for that. Norepinephrine and serotonin are kind of um, teeter-totters. You know, when one goes up, the other one tends to go down. Prolonged stress leads to underactivity of the stress response system, desensitization. So your brain over prolonged stress is going to start saying, you know what, I've only got so much energy and I can't fight or flee from everything right now. I have to conserve it for what's really the most important. So people may not have norepinephrine sent out as much, which is when you start feeling depressed or seeing depressive symptoms. Symptoms of excess norepinephrine, ADHD or problems with concentration. Remember, you saw that in dopamine too. Depression, if people are too wound up for too long, they may start experiencing some, some depression. Anxiety and poor sleep. Nutrition, again, tyrosine-rich foods. You want to look at bananas, beans and legumes, chicken, cheese, chocolate, eggs, fish and seafood, meat, and oatmeal. Um, so tyrosine, we're, we're seeing repeatedly, making sure that people are getting access to some of these. And I included, I made sure to include vegetarian options as well as um, other options in case people aren't good with eggs, fish, or chicken. A daytime nap, they found, can also double your levels of norepinephrine. Now, naps should never be, well, ideally, longer than 45 minutes. You don't want people to go into a full REM cycle because that just throws their circadian rhythms completely off. A 20-minute nap where you're resting your eyes, some people find that that makes them feel a ton better. I can't seem to shake it if I lay down for 20 minutes or sit sit in the easy chair for 20 minutes. I feel groggy afterwards. 
So people will have to figure out for themselves if that works for them. So glutamate is another excitatory neurotransmitter. So dopamine is our pleasure neurotransmitter. It helps keep us motivated. Norepinephrine is our motivation and our fight or flight neurotransmitter. Um, glutamate is also another excitatory neurotransmitter. It's going to rev people up. Um, glutamate is actually a, an amino acid, which is present in most high-protein foods. So you don't even have to go out of your way to find this one. If you're eating protein, you're probably getting it. It's the most prevalent excitatory neuro neurotransmitter, and it's used to make GABA. The brain breaks down glutamate to make GABA. So if you don't have enough glutamate, which revs you up, likely make enough GABA to calm you down. And GABA is our primary chillax neurotransmitter. It facilitates learning and memory. It keeps us alert. Too much glutamate, though, is associated with panic, attack, panic attacks and anxiety, impulsivity, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and sometimes depression. Glutamate availability declines with age, and it's affected serotonin availability. So, you know, if there's more serotonin, then there, there's not going to be as much glutamate and, and vice versa. Too little glutamate can lead people to feel agitated, have memory loss, sleepless, uh, low energy level, and depression. Glutamate, we don't talk about a lot. Um, we talk more about GABA. And GABA is designed as an anti-anxiety, anti-convulsant sort of neurochemical. It's made from glutamate and functions as an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it inhibits our function. It slows our breathing, slows our, our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure. You know, it's just a great neurotransmitter. Um, GABA does the opposite of glutamate. And instead of telling all the nerves to fire, it says, don't fire. Relax. Close to 40% of the GABA synapses in the human brain work with GABA and therefore have GABA receptors. So think about that. In your brain, not just in one little part of your brain, but in your brain, close to 40% of the synapses work with GABA. So if you don't have enough GABA, then you could have some significant side effects. Insufficiency, anxiety, depression, difficulty concentrating, insomnia, and seizure disorders. Um, one of the medications that we'll talk about in a few minutes, clonopin, is an uh, anticonvulsant, and it increases GABA levels. Symptoms of excess, and sometimes you'll see clonopin prescribed for anxiety as well, because the prescribing physician doesn't like some of those traditional benzos for some reason. Symptoms of excess, excess sleepiness, shallow breathing, decreased blood pressure, memory problems, dizziness, blurred vision, slurred speech, and weakness. So all the symptoms of what you would see with an opiate, opiate overdose, what you would see with a, a GABA overdose, what you would see in somebody who's intoxicated, you know, these are the things that we're going to be looking for. Nutritional building blocks, fermented foods. Now, that's, that's you know, this is the only one that nutritional building block is a fermented food. Almonds and walnuts, cherry tomatoes. Tomatoes with a thicker skin have more of what's needed to improve GABA levels. Bananas again, brown rice again, potatoes, oats, lentils. 
vitamins, but that's between them and their doctor. B8 is another one that's really important for GABA. Um, you can find that in wheat germ, brown rice, green leafy vegetables, nuts, and navy and lima beans specifically. So that may be a little bit harder to get if you don't like brown rice or green leafy vegetables, but it, it's possible. And you know you will find it in some of the better nutritional uh, multivitamins. Medications that increase the available amount of GABA typically have a relaxing, anti-anxiety, and anti-convulsive effect. Gabapentin is one of the more common ones that we think of, or Neurontin, is a GABA analog and is used to treat epilepsy and neurotic pain. Um, benzodiazepines and barbiturates, including GHB, Valium, and Xanax, also increase GABA levels. Baclofen and clonopin, um, well, baclofen as a muscle relaxant. Um, my dog is actually on that right now. Um, she's 14, so. But it's a, it's a newer muscle relaxant and, and painkiller sort of thing. And clonopin is the anti-convulsant that I told you about before. This is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you an idea that we're kind of covering a broad spectrum. If you're working with somebody who has co-occurring issues, the doctors are probably going to steer away from the last three and more towards Neurontin um, for chronic pain and, and muscle problems. Now serotonin, our favorite chemical to talk about. Not mine, but in general. Uh, it helps regulate mood, symptoms, uh, mood, sleep patterns, appetite, and pain. So how you feel, how you sleep, whether you're hungry and if you're in, in pain. It, it's a big one. And there are a lot of other things that it does. If you go here, let me see if I can get it to come up. Maybe, maybe not. And this is far too small for you to really read right now, but if you go to this Wikipedia page on serotonin, it talks about all the different serotonin receptors um, and, and binding profiles and talks about what it's involved in, like um, 5-HT1A is responsible for dopamine release in the prefrontal cortex um, in addition to being a serotonin receptor. Um, so it gives you an idea about how broadly some of these neurochemicals can affect someone. Anyhow, where's it found? It's found in your brain, but 80% of your serotonin is found in your gut and intestines. So if you're working with somebody who has gut and intestinal problems that are reducing um, bioavailability, reducing absorption, you could have some problems here. Uh, so brief little talk about serotonin syndrome because we don't talk about it enough. and. It's so important. One dose, too much. One time. It's not something that has to build up over time like most SSRIs do. If you overdose one time, you can develop serotonin syndrome. Now, it generally goes away when the offending chemical is gets out of your system. But it can cause shivering, diarrhea, muscle rigidity, fever, high, high fever, like 108 plus seizures, irregular heart rate agitation, high blood pressure, stroke. Um, so it's important to be aware that too much serotonin can be really, really bad. And people who take supplements like 5-HT1 
find out in a minute, that increase serotonin that people aren't aware of um, as being serotonin increasers. So it's really important to educate clients about the side effects so they're more cognizant. So too little in, uh, serotonin leads to feelings of depression, anxiety, pain sensitivity. Serotonin is involved in regulating our pain threshold. When our serotonin's low, our pain threshold is lower. Same thing, again, with dopamine. When our dopamine's low, our pain threshold is lower because dopamine helps with pain. Poor sleep, because melatonin is made by breaking down serotonin. Um, if somebody doesn't have enough serotonin, they may not be able to get quality sleep. Difficulty concentrating. Carb cravings. Our body, when we eat uh, high sugar, high carb foods, tends to release serotonin and dopamine. See how these things are so hard to ferret out, especially since we can't really experiment on the human brain? Anyhow, carb cravings are common in people who have. All right, so I'm going to stop right there um, for today. Um, I think that we've gotten some really good information and this presentation provides some really great information um, in regards to the big six and how it operates. Um, definitely a really great um, foundation starting point to get a better understanding of what your big six is all about. Um, if you decided to listen this long, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and this is Madam Butterfly. I'm going to wrap it up here. Stay tuned for part two. Thank you so much for listening again. And uh, I'm out. Madam Butterfly out. Have a great rest of your Monday.